electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead this hour. A two-month low in COVID cases, hope for potential plasma treatment, and housing on an absolute tear. Is all of this positive news a recipe to continue the rally? We will ask with stocks up 249 on the Dow right now. Wow. Still with millions of students not entering schools this fall, the economy could lose $700 billion worth of essential services. We're going to look at the areas and some of the stocks that could suffer, and they may not already be on your radar. Plus, are investors too big on social? A casino rebound royale? Take your vacations, Dom. And a fast food hiring frenzy. That is all ahead in rapid fire, but we do begin with the markets, and Mr. Chu is here with those numbers. I've got some strong takes. It's about whether Comcast NBC will pay me for my unused vacation time. We'll bring that up in rapid fire later on. But anyway, let's talk about the record highs. I would put the gold stars up right away. We're accustomed to seeing them. Gold star for the S&P, gold star for the Nasdaq composite. That denotes both of these at one point hit record intraday highs. Just for your mark here, 34, 26, spot 99 if you want to get technical. That's the new record intraday high for the S&P 500. We'll keep an eye on that, that particular trade. Also watch what's happening with energy and financials in particular. They are outperforming the overall market today, financials and energy. But I want to remind viewers and listeners out there, because financials and energy represent the two S&P sectors that are the worst by a wide margin on a year-to-day basis. So we're seeing a bit of a catch-up trade today. Financials, by the way, is a sector down 20% year-to-date. Energy down about 40% year-to-date. So there's a lot of ground to make up there. And then one place to watch. We've talked so much about the, the momentum in stocks like Amazon and Tesla and Microsoft, and all the others out there. Check out this particular ETF, the iShares MSCI USA Momentum. It's a mouthful, but the ticker is MTUM. It's a nearly $12 billion ETF that tracks price appreciation as a factor in picking its stocks. That, at the lows up to where we are now, is plus 65% in that run. The S&P is up a very respectable 55%. But again, if you look at these particular stocks, is the Apples, Kelly, the Amazons, the Teslas, the Microsofts. Those four stocks, by the way, make up nearly one quarter of this entire ETF. Back over to you. Yep, just bigger by the day. Dom, thank you very much. Well, some positive developments in the battle against coronavirus. A decrease in cases, emergency approval for a plasma treatment, possible fast-tracking of AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine. And against all this, we have the housing market on a tear. Is this a recipe for new highs for the market? Joining me now to talk about that, Barry Knapp is managing partner at Ironsides Macroeconomics, and Jeff Krempelman is chief investment strategist at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Welcome to you both. And Jeff, do you think the market has been sensing that the news flow on coronavirus might turn better, or is it too soon to even be talking about better trends on the COVID front? Well, I don't think we need to. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves on the coronavirus news. I do think the news flow is skewed towards the positive. And, you know, with the policy support that we've had and the improvement in the fundamentals over the last several months, I think that that has given a lift uh, to confidence and psychology in the market and then wishes uh, just on the margin, the incremental positive news. 
on uh, vaccine, on various treatments has, has been good, but I don't think we're out of the woods on that yet. Yeah, and, you guys have 3,500 as your price target for the S&P right. by mid-2021, and you've largely kind of stuck with that. So even as the market's comeback has surprised many observers, would you, what are your thoughts here? As Dom mentioned, the momentum ETF at an all-time high, CNN fear greed index, definitely in greed territory. Uh, you think things have kind of gone a little too far too fast? Well, you know, in terms of the absolute level, we were inclined not only to, you know, stay with that 3,500 target, in a hold your ground view, but maybe raise that if we did get some positive incremental news on, on policy, additional policy on uh, various treatments for, for COVID. But we're very comfortable just kind of hanging, you know, where we are right there with, with those targets and uh, think that the, the fundamentals are very solid. It's been stronger and quicker. It's been the fastest, uh, you know, 100-day move off the bottom and the S&P 500 on record in oh, history. Yeah. We've just achieved it more quickly. And if this news flow continues to be positive, and I would add, I think, on the election, too, as we move through some probably crabby kind of moods around the election as we get closer, we, we move through that. We do think that we're on to higher highs. And, Barry, you do think in many ways that the, this stock market is a preview of the economy that's to come of the 2020s. Now, some people, you know, John Spellanzani has been out there for months saying he thinks we're going to have a roaring 20s, that all of this pent-up demand, the new economy, uh, could really surprise us to the upside. What do you think is going on here? Well, the, the way I would approach it, and, and in particular when you think about the tech versus economically sensitive cyclicals, even what's going on today with financials and energy performing well. Um, I, I do think the market's giving you a very good preview about what the economy is going to look like through the 2020s. We're going to see, in my view, an acceleration of technology innovation adoption across a range of sectors. But what I think that means for tech, though, is that the benefits of that will move from the producers of that technology, i.e. the software companies, to the consumers of that. So health, the healthcare sector, consumer discretionary sector, you saw that already last week, Walmart and Target actually using that Amazon delivery mechanism to be able to you know, perform so well through the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. So over time, I would not expect nearly through the 20s, uh, the same level of outperformance that tech had during the 10s. Now, from a more tactical perspective, I do think we're vulnerable to a correction uh, in the next couple of months, what the most probable cause that I think you know could could cause that would be a shock higher in real rates, like we had in January of 2018 or in uh, September of 2018, where the rate of change of Fed purchases slows. Mm -hmm. Clearly, a catalyst for concerns about that could be you know real progress on therapeutics or a vaccine or something else, where everyone said, "Gee, now now they're we're not concerned about the economy anymore." Real rates shock higher, and that causes a significant correction. Tech would probably get hurt in that scenario worse, uh, if only because it's gone up the most. So I do think we're, we should be a little cautious and have some powder dry for that sort of a window um, 
Yeah, as, and, we, as we look at it. Listen, hopefully, even if real rates shock higher, it's for the right reason. You know, when you come down from minus 1%, that's a pretty dire outlook for the economy. If people simply start catching up with the kind of scenario we're discussing here, then it maybe it'd be a good thing, even if it's a, a short-term headwind. So, Jeff, I'll finish with you. Where would sure. you be positioned? I mean, do you basically just maintain exposure to the stock market broadly? Or, as Barry suggested, do you want to maybe trim on technology? I'm 100% with Barry on this. I don't think you necessarily need to trim in technology, and I think that it's uh, just a myth that it's only been the FANG stocks that have done well. We've had great success with uh, stocks like Salesforce and Splunk and 2.6 and Micron and Microchip. I could go on and on. <laughs> Actually, we've had very broad participation. So I would maintain my technology holding. I would just broaden it out a little bit, and I think balance is the key. This idea that you need to run the cyclicals I think is a little off base. You need balance, you need both growth and value, and I don't think this is the time to jump into spit in the wind stocks. Caution is important over the next couple months. Next 6-12, we're pretty confident. Caution near term, yeah. have balance and have a nice blend of both growth and value, but it's not off to the races. For well, sure. I haven't heard the high flyers called spit in the wind stocks yet, so <laughs> that's, that's my takeaway of the day. Thank you both, guys. Jeff Krumpleman, Barry Knapp, talking about these markets. Appreciate it. We turn now to less uh, exciting news today. Certainly, while we've had positive news on the COVID front, it is bad, bad news and natural disasters. The California wildfires have record heat, wind gusts, lightning storms now hindering firefighting efforts. These fires are bearing down on all sides of the Bay Area. Aditi Roy is out west with the very latest for us. Aditi. Hi, Kelly. The sun is just beginning to peek out from the smoke this morning winds are definitely calmer after a roller coaster of a week as Californians have braced for hundreds of wildfires burning throughout the state. Those wildfires sparked by some 12,000 lightning strikes over the last 10 days. They've touched off 625 wildfires burning more than a million acres. Those fires have killed seven people, destroyed 1,200 structures and evacuated tens of thousands. The White House approved California's request for a presidential major disaster declaration over the weekend. And you can see now from this graphic how much of the state is affected by the fires. More than two dozen counties are impacted from top to bottom of the state. The two largest blazes, the LNU up in wine country and the SCU, which covers five Bay Area counties, including Santa Clara, where we are, and Alameda counties. They're now the second and third largest fires in California history. Right now, the LNU fire is more than 20 percent contained, while the SCU remains 10% contained. The wild card has been the weather, of course. But Kelly, some good news we just got minutes ago. The National Weather Service just canceled its red flag warning for more lightning strikes and wind gusts for thunderstorms. That was supposed to be in effect until 5 p.m. tonight, locals. Definitely a glimmer of hope there for the 16,000 firefighters on the lines. Yeah, and Aditi, we're thinking about the restaurants to the economy out there for now, are, are these people in cities, are they very affected by what's already happening with the firefighters? In other words, if you're a restaurant, you can only sit outdoors right now. Is even that experience now yeah. in jeopardy because of what's happening? Absolutely. I mean, I can tell you being here in San Jose, uh, it was the air quality was horrible this weekend and people are definitely fewer people on the roads. I've noticed, I mean, the roads have already thinned out, obviously, because of the pandemic, but they were even thinner this weekend. Uh, a lot of people are trying to even skip town in search of better air quality. Absolutely. I mean, getting outside right now is kind of the one way to deal with the pandemic. If you can't do that, uh, pretty yeah. difficult. Aditi, thanks. 
Uh, Didi Roy keeping us posted on the situation out there. Coming up, the battle between Apple and Fortnite owner Epic over the App Store is getting bigger as more companies join the fight against Apple. This, as the stock hits all-time highs and prepares to split, we will look at what's at stake. Plus, as millions of students stay home this back-to-school season, it's not just retail that has a lot to lose. There's $700 billion worth of the economy at stake. We'll tell you who's most at risk and what it does mean for the recovery. And finally, DoorDash could be opening the door to an IPO. We'll have more details when the exchange continues. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Shares of Apple are continuing their record surge, hitting another all-time high today, over $515 a share ahead of the upcoming four-for-one share split. That split will not only mean a new share price, but will have a huge impact on the Dow. Right now, Apple has the largest weighting in the index. It's become 12% because the Dow is price-weighted. But once the split takes effect on August 31, that weighting will be cut by more than half. At today's prices, Apple will drop from the number one influencer to number 12, and the new king will be United Health, followed by Home Depot and Microsoft. Now, to get a glimpse of Apple's influence on the Dow, at its all-time high, it added 1,519 points to that blue chip index this year. While the company continues to be the darling of Wall Street, it is not getting the same love from a growing number of companies who are revolting against the App Store policies. Microsoft now speaking out against the tech giant in its legal battle with Fortnite maker Epic Games. Microsoft warning court that if Apple blocks access to Epic's graphics engine, it could have a disastrous effect on the entire gaming industry. Microsoft joins a growing list of companies who are raising a red flag. For more, let's bring in Jack Nickus. He's technology reporter at the New York Times. And Steve Kobach is technology editor for CNBC.com. It's good to have you both. Steve, is this just an irresistible opportunity for Microsoft uh, here to take a swipe at a rival? Or are they right that this would be a huge setback for game development in general? Well, that's right, Kelly. There are are two things happening here. One, Microsoft does have a legitimate concern that the software tools that Epic already makes Uh, for other developers to make 3D games could hurt not just Microsoft, which is working on those 3D games, but also many game developers that need this software in order to make those innovative stuff we like to play on our phones. But there's another side story happening here that Microsoft is angry with Apple over, and that's this uh, streaming service called xCloud. It's like kind of like the Netflix of games, meaning mm-hmm. you can stream your game from anywhere, you can pick it up, play it on your phone, and then uh, start over or start where you left off on your, uh, your Xbox. Um, but Apple is blocking that service from being on iOS devices, so no iPad, no iPhone. And you can tell they're really upset about this. So by joining Epic here in this lawsuit and backing Epic's arguments, uh, they're really kind of poking Apple in the eye. It's like, we got you here on this legal avenue right now. And, you know, a little bit down the road, uh, we really disagree with your rules around this this innovative new streaming service we're working on. And not to mention, Google has a similar service that's also blocked 
from the App Store. Yes. Yeah, so, Jack, I wonder if Apple's now gotten in over its head here um, or not, as the stock price seems to be telling us investors are totally unperturbed by these developments. Why? Uh, well, I think Apple is seen as a safe haven for investors. I mean, obviously, the economy is uh, is somewhat in tatters uh, by some measures, um, but for investors, they see Apple as a company that has such a wide moat and such a wide lead over their com- competition that they're going to be just fine. And also, I mean, uh, the pandemic has been pretty good for Apple. Obviously, I'm talking to you through a MacBook right now, and um, this is how many of us are conducting our lives and our, and our business nowadays. Um, but I think, you know, one big question is what Steve was just talking about, and that is Apple's cut of App Store revenue. That has been a huge driver of growth for Apple in recent years. Mm-hmm. The market has become saturated. But now it is finding that many other companies uh, from which it's taking a 30% cut of their revenue are now speaking up and saying, hey, uh, this is too much. So, Steve, as you mentioned, all of this is relating to a court case against Apple that's building here. How significant a challenge uh, is being mounted? And what about the fact that the other news last week was that news publishers were upset because they found out that Amazon was charged only, I think, a 15 percent rate through the App Store when they were often paying double for new subscriptions? Yeah, that's exactly. there are so many threads to pull here. There's the sweetheart deals that Apple has cut with companies like Amazon to get less of that revenue cut. And then you've got to, you've got to think about also like these other companies that have spoken out ever since this epic thing first started. We have Spotify. We have Match Group. We have Facebook. It's, it's this growing coalition. They're not totally formally together, but they are uh, feeding off of each other. we got the graphic right there. Uh, they're feeding off of each other and speaking out against these policies that they view as unfair. Yeah. So, Jack, spin this forward for us. Again, your Apple, the first place we would look for the impact would be in the stock market for people to be discounting. Hey, there's a potential that this app store revenue stream may be less promising than we once thought. And yet we're not seeing that message come across, are we? We're certainly not. And I think that there are other uh, you know, prevailing factors that investors may be considering, including the fact that Apple is about to launch a new iPhone that many see as Uh, a very significant uh, business move for it, given the fact that it's potentially a 5G iPhone, and there's a huge amount of uh, buyers who are ready to upgrade their phones. So that is certainly priced into the stock. But also the fact that Apple is uh, is kind of a bully here, and it has a lot of power to essentially tell all these other companies, sorry, too bad. Unless regulators step in, there is probably little that can happen, um, aside from a court case, which would take years and years to play out for Apple to really have to change its terms yeah. um, because it yeah. really is uh, such a gatekeeper and has so much control over how we live our lives. Steve, I'll give you the last word. Would you agree with that? Or is this pressure from uh, other players? Forget, you know, the regulators. Could these other pressures, bring, other players bring enough pressure to bear? Yeah, I, I really think it's going to come from that board we just showed, all these big companies that, that maybe obviously don't have the same market power as Apple, but together Maybe they can force Apple to make some kind of change to their rules outside of court. Otherwise, this is just going to keep getting growing and getting louder. So I expect some kind of movement, uh, whether legally or just Apple doing it on its own. All right, gentlemen, thanks. Appreciate it. Jack Nickus and our Steve Kovac. And for more on Steve's piece about Apple's new battle, you can read it on CNBC.com. Coming up, the street's been very bullish on social stocks, maybe a little too bullish. Why one analyst says it's time to get cautious. We have that and we go inside the new movie going experience in the COVID age. Stay with us.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's a check on your markets right now. The Dow is in the leadership position, which we haven't seen often, but that sets the tone for everything that's going on behind me today. The Dow's up 250, just off the session high of over 300 points, and it is helped by Apple, which is over $500 a share for the first time. S&P's up 23, that's seven-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ only up half a percent. And here's what's going on behind me. Most of the sectors are in the green today, but the leadership is slightly different. It's a rotation into energy and financials, two names that we rarely see up there. Uh, but this reopening trade is kind of tying everything together right now. So about 2% gains for energy, 1.5% for financials, technology up three quarters of a percent, healthcare and real estate are weaker. Some of the individual movers today include shares of Zoom Video, which are lower after, you might have heard about these, partial outages in North America and parts of Europe that affected meetings and webinars this morning. The company has been investigating these outages. The shares still are down just under 3%. And as I mentioned, the reopening trade is in full swing. Take a look at the cruise line stocks and the airlines. The cruise line stocks are all up big. Carnival and Norwegian up 7 to 8%. And the airlines, same story, United up 8%, American 2 JetBlue just slightly less than that. And there's no stopping Tesla. Call it reopening, call it it's just Tesla. It's its own trade. The stock hitting another all-time high today. Uh, let's see, it's right now trading about $2,030 a share. We're down about 1%, but in the past week, we're up uh, multiple iterations of that. In the past month, we're up 40%. And for the year, we're up more than 380% on Tesla. Let's get over to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. Within the last hour, President Trump came on stage at the Republican convention in North Carolina to speak to delegates after they formally renominated him to be the party's presidential candidate. He accused the Democrats of trying to, quote, steal the election, end quote. Dr. Anthony Fauci is back at work at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases after undergoing surgery to remove a polyp from his vocal cord last week. For the next couple of weeks to 10 days, he will have to refrain from speaking for long periods of time. And American Airlines has been granted emergency approval by the EPA to use a disinfectant which protects against the coronavirus for up to seven days on some surfaces. The airline will begin spraying its airplane cabins with the disinfectant at its home base in Texas. But the carrier hopes to eventually use it across its entire fleet. The disinfectant, however, is not a substitute for cleaning. You're up to date, Kel. That's the news update. Back to you. I mean, I find that is promising a breakthrough. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that would be great. They are hoping they got emergency uh, use just in Texas, hmm. but they are hoping to expand that. But 
keep in mind that New York is one of their biggest hubs. So some of the bigger cities will have the benefit if they spray down those planes in Texas and then fly to those other hubs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll have to watch it. Sue, thank you very much. You got it. Sue Herrera. Movie theater stocks are also higher today, this weekend, and for the first time since March, nearly a third of U.S. movie theaters opened their doors. People actually walked through them. Cinemark's, Cinemark is up 4% today. One moviegoer shared her experience firsthand with Julia Borson. Uh, Julia joins me now with more. Julia. Well, Kelly, this weekend, nearly 1,700 U.S. theaters were open for the first wide release since theaters shuttered in March. It was for Unhinged, starring, starring Russell Crowe from Independent Solstice Studios. It sold some $4 million in domestic ticket sales, according to Comscore. Now, pre-COVID, that would have been a disappointment, but now it indicates demand. We talked to a woman in Orlando inside a theater about what movie going is like right now. Even before you walk in the front door, the signage is, is very noticeable. There's an individual behind a plexiglass partition to take your ticket, wearing a mask. I booked my tickets online, and I also pre-ordered concessions online. When I arrived, they handed me concessions in a gift bag type setup. The cups came in the bag as well, and it, the cups were uh, like self-serve cups. Refills temporarily unavailable. It felt very vacant. I, like ghost town like so far i've seen four people during the movie after the movie before the movie i felt safe and it was clean now seven states including california and new york those seven typically account for about a quarter of box office revenue they're still not allowed to open theaters so kelly it'll be interesting to see what happens when those states start showing releases as well. You know, that popcorn looks so good right now, Julia, but I, I just don't, I'm not ready. I can't do it. I'm not ready. Well, look, Kelly, a lot of people, including myself, are feeling like you. I'm very comfortable watching movies at home. And for a lot of consumers, the fact that more films are going to be available at home at a premium price, people are going to be willing to pay if they can watch at home. Remember, Mulan for Disney Plus subscribers is going to be available for an additional $30. So it'll be really interesting to see what that does to the movie-going audience and also whether Disney releases any statistics on how many people choose to pay $30 for a movie. Yes, we at home. are very eager. I'm sure we'll find out at some point, uh, but it's going to be a big number. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Coming up, investors are betting big on the casino stocks this month with some of those names of more than 50%. We're going to look at why and if it can continue. Plus, DoorDash is reportedly opening the door to an IPO and saying no thanks to a direct listing. We'll tell you why. And please take your vacations. We're back after this. Just don't take them right now. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here with their takes on the headlines are Contessa Brewer, Dom Chu, and Kate Rogers. Who, can, can we now say, Kate, that you're out west? It's, it looks beautiful there. Even wildfires yes. and all that notwithstanding. That's right. Thanks. Good to be here. Welcome. But, we're, you know, I'm just still so sad. I, I get it. I'm over it. But especially when we can ever be back in person, Kate. It's just it's not going to be the same. You know that. I'll come, I'll come visit you, Kelly. I'll All be right. there. 
All right, bring some dominoes. No, that's for later. All right, first up, City <laughs> is getting bearish on some social media names today, saying that for the smaller ones especially, they think some caution is in order. They downgraded Pinterest from buy to neutral. Facebook is their only buy-rated social media stock. The analyst says digital outperformed traditional ads in the second quarter, and that's helped the huge one. We've seen these stocks this year. But, Dom, he's implying that it's just gone too far too fast. Uh, and it's not even just too far too fast. The, the, the absolute run, the absolute percentage gain that you've seen for some of these stocks even if you take out what happened in the pandemic lows through the middle of March, has been fairly staggering. And just look at the market caps of some of these companies. We talk about Microsoft so much. We talk about Apple so much. But some of these other social media companies have had a tremendous run-up, a lot of which is because people are thinking we're using them more. Folks are actually taking to social media in times of pandemic lockdowns. This is one of those situations where if not now, when do you downgrade after a run like that? Right. And so maybe there's no surprise here, Kel. No, it's true, Contessa. you got to kind of tip your hat to him and say, yes, Pinterest is up 85 percent this year. Snap is up 30 percent this year. You know, it, it makes sense. They're saying that what's priced in is for these firms to add $21 billion of revenue growth in 2021 and 2022, which is $5 billion more than they added in 2018 and 2019. So, you know, how kind of vertical is the slope of this, you know, kind of pandemic well, social it, media line? It might be hard to beat that growth. And if you just look at what's happened the last six months, and now I'm talking from personal experience, the amount of ads that I've seen in my social media feed and the number of times, and this was unprecedented, that I bought something hmm. off of that particular ad. It came in, it was usually um, less thrilling than it seemed <laughs> when I first saw the ad. But, I mean, it, clearly they were appealing to something in all of us sitting at home in front of our phones talking to our friends on Facebook rather than talking to our friends. Yeah, Kate, I think about it when I walk through town under the train station where all of those uh, advertisements are on the walls and there's just nobody taking the train these days. So the value of what people paid for that obviously is not what they hoped. I clicked on an ad once uh, in Pinterest and the shoes cut my feet open. And I was I vowed to never click on another ad again. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, Kelly, like Contessa, I've, you know, fallen victim to a lot of these social media ads, and I've seen a lot more targeting, particularly staying home, particularly for things like sweatpants, more comfortable clothes, et cetera. It's worked on me, but when we just talk about how much these stocks have run up, what's the catalyst moving forward? We're all already online. We're online yeah. more than we've ever been. So where do they go from here? Again, priced in. So for Citigroup, Facebook still maintains a buy rating. Everyone else is neutral or, in Snap's case, a sell. Next up, speaking of big moves, check out the casino stocks this month. Thanks to some positive developments in a race for a vaccine, even today, uh, we've got some strong performance on shares of MGM, Wynn, Las Vegas Sands, and Melco Resorts. There you can see it. Uh, MGM leading the way up about 4%. MGM, also the best performer for the month, up 40%. Uh, pretty impressive stuff, Contessa. MGM's case, they had this investment from Barry Diller. Uh, but broadly speaking, is this just because the COVID trends look a little better or because the stocks got so cheap or what? I mean, that what they've done is they've hit a jackpot of good news headlines. For one thing, they're about to start seeing uh, the, the gates opening up for tourism visas in Macau. Already they're being issued from Zhuhai City. It's a start. China's coming. They expect that in September. That will mean a big deal for Las Vegas Sands, for Wynn, MGM, and for Melco, which is based in Hong Kong but listed on the exchange here. Domestically, you have all of these casinos that have reported their second quarter earnings and said, look, what we're seeing is players coming in and spending more per visit than they did pre-coronavirus. So even though our occupancy is capped, 
our players are more valuable, and we've cut massive costs. I mean, they've seen profit uh, margin improvement by 1,800, 2,000 basis points. Wow. You just had a deal done with Eldorado and Caesars now making it the biggest domestic company in the nation in terms of the number of properties. You've got good news for Penn in pairing with Barcel and what it's going to mean for sports and a big <laughs> yen for sports betting. It just seems like whatever downside there is, higher infection rates in Las Vegas, for instance, right. it you just can't keep the casinos from rolling the dice and moving forward. It's interesting, Dom, because the casinos, especially the smaller ones with coin play slots, have a problem with the coin shortage in this country. But it reminds me that actually digital gaming has seen huge growth during the shutdown. I wonder if that is a headwind to these stocks at some point going forward. Uh, it can be a headwind or it could be a real tailwind over the, over the medium to longer term. And the reason why I say that is because I thought the same thing. And, and many viewers or listeners out there have run into me in casinos in, in Atlantic <laughs> City or in Las Vegas or, or in, in my home state of Connecticut at the Native American casinos. However, the thing that I thought that was most interesting is you look at the thesis going forward. If some of these large-scale casino operators can actually change the way that they put their offering out there, not as much a focus on the in-experience, in-house experience, but more on the digital side of things, there could be a huge amount of total addressable market for some of these casinos out there. Myself, I, I relish the day we get a vaccine and can go back into a gaming establishment, hang out with people at the craps yeah. table, at the blackjack table. But until then... These guys have a real paradigm shift going on. I guess my only question is how long it stays that way. I had no idea you were so passionate about the casino uh, experience. I was like, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the casinos. Wow. For sure. uh, look at uh, tuxedo, bota. Anyway, uh, topic three today is that DoorDash is reportedly back on track for a traditional IPO in November or December of this year. Now, reports said the company was considering the direct listing option. Their sales have obviously surged since the pandemic began. They were valued at $16 billion in June after raising $400 million. Kate, it seems like a no-brainer to go public right now, no matter by which method. Yeah, $16 billion valuation, still losing money, let's not forget, but has become just such a big player, particularly in the space I watch with all the fast food companies. We saw a lot of them pairing up with Uber Eats in the beginning and doing a lot of exclusive partnerships with that service. Now DoorDash, basically every major restaurant player that matters that's working with aggregators is also uh, working with DoorDash. And as you said, during the pandemic, more important than ever, but some headwinds moving forward, like what happens in California with contract workers, for example, how that could potentially impact its business model moving forward. Yeah. And what about where we stand on um, with the whole, you know, California, obviously how they classify employees. Now, even for Uber, they had said, we think we'd have to shut down ride sharing, which ultimately they don't right now. We wouldn't have to shut down delivery. But that was not clear if that was true or not. They might have to. I mean, is this business model going to be under threat if we don't figure out a way to do kind of portable benefits? I'd say the one word I think of is fluid, right? I mean, this is a, this is a situation <laughs> where the regulations and rules and laws are, are, are actually just evolving because we are at the frontier. This is a situation in an industry that really is kind of at the forefront of things and has evolved so rapidly over the last few weeks. So when it comes to food, I mean... Yes, the employment laws could be what they are right now, but I get a feeling like you're going to see those things change and play catch up pretty quickly if these trends can persist with regard to restaurants, food and delivery, drivers and everything else. Yeah. So it, it's only a matter of time. Listen, if Airbnb, which is probably hurt most by the pandemic, can go public this year, then DoorDash certainly can and probably should. Next up is maybe my favorite story of the day. It's that employers are debating what to do with all of their employees' unused vacation time this year. According to the Wall Street Journal, an internal review at SAP found their employees' vacation usage was only 4% earlier this summer. Contessa, down from 24% in a typical year. And 
some of these companies are worried everyone's going to take it at the same time at the end of the year and leave them, you know, with, with no one to work. I was talking with one of our bosses about this very issue back in March <laughs> and predicting that if we can't go anywhere, who wants to take time off to go clean out the closets or go weed the garden? I mean, that's not much of a vacation. And yet, if you do it, and the studies show because we're spending all these off hours on company email or doing these Zoom meetings at weird hours, and we're working a lot, even if we're at home, that the time off right now might be even more important. So the so these employers have to decide, what are we going to do? We're going to hold it over, which could be a problem for the bottom line, and then you have all this accrued paid time off next year. Right. Are we going to allow our employers to donate, employees to donate some of their time? Are we going to force them to take the time and say, here's your week, take it, use it or lose it? I don't know. Ooh, I wouldn't want to be forced to take it. Dom, what about you? I, I'm okay to all of these possibilities so long, they're, so long as it's equitably put out to every employee in, in the organization. For me... I mean, if they would pay me out for, for, for my unused vacation time, I might have to really think long and hard about whether or not I wanted to take the physical time <laughs> off. But I'm actually, I'm with Contessa here. The, the more I found this, and I, have, and I have a wife who is now working from home and has been working her butt off. While for the on last, maternity for, leave. Right, yeah. on maternity leave <laughs> yeah. and everything. I've watched her work harder than I ever have in my life. It, it, certainly d during our marriage, I kind of feel like you need to take the time off, even if you're at home in lockdown and quarantine or, or restricted from movement because it's only for your mental well-being. But the one thing, we got to move on, but the one thing companies don't have right now, Dom, is to offer, most companies do not have the cash flow right now to be able to say, sure, we'll pay everybody out. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, then maybe you let them accrue it past a certain time or you take away the expiration dates and see hmm. if there's kind of like a two-year span or a three-year like span cards. that you can amortize it. Or, you know, maybe it is something like that. Who knows? We're, uh, they're going to get creative and everyone needs the mental break. That's uh, for sure. Uh, finally, today, we're taking a look at the hiring sprees in the fast food space. Since the pandemic, restaurants have launched campaigns to hire nearly 500,000 workers. We're talking everyone from McDonald's to Subway, Taco Bell, Papa John's and Domino's. Now, not all the stocks have done great this year, but the pizza names are doing fantastically. Papa John's is up 57 percent for the year. Domino's up 43 percent. Kate, and they have two new pizzas today. Sound awful. Cheeseburger <laughs> and chicken taco. Because this is keeping up Listen with consumer taste. Listen to each their own. Yeah. To each their own on the pizza. Like, I'm not a pineapple pizza person. I know that people do love that menu innovation, though. Kelly's become really important. Domino says cheeseburgers and tacos don't deliver well. They don't carry well. So we'll put them on a pizza. That's a surefire way to get it uh, to your door in one piece, and, and it'll be tasty, according to the company. But as you mentioned, just a huge hiring spree at a lot of the names that have really done well during the pandemic. Also, Chipotle, uh, Wingstop, Dunkin', uh, McDonald's, all really hiring in huge numbers. But if you take a step back and you look at the the restaurant industry at large, 8 million jobs have been lost. It's really just a tale of two different industries. A lot of the independents, the mom and pops, the casual dining names in particular, really, really struggling. The ones that have gotten this right know how to cater to the new consumer in yes. this new environment are just taking off. So important. It's the exact same thing we're seeing across retail, Contessa. And it's interesting that they're putting stuff that doesn't travel well on a pizza. It makes me think about my local pizza place, which does a salad pizza that people love. What else needs to go on a pizza in order to preserve it? Um, I don't know. But the other thing is that a lot of these jobs, like you, if you're leaving, let's say you worked at a mom and pop restaurant, are you going to become a, a driver for your local pizza chain? I don't think so. Maybe. I don't think so. That was for Contessa. <laughs> but, Dom, you can go ahead All right. since you're so, right so here. here. I will say this. Having listened to what you just said, my, my thinking is if you are an employee that's looking for work in this kind of a situation and we have an economic environment like we're in right now, 
I personally would try to find whatever opportunities I could, whether it was at a mom and pop or whether it was at a chain. But if I could find a way to get a paycheck or collect more money, chop more wood, so to speak, sweep more floors, whatever I needed to do, I would do it. So I I, kind of think I can get along with this trend of hiring, especially at some of these fast food restaurants. I know. It's good to highlight places that are hiring, not just the ones that are shrinking. Got to leave it there, everybody. Good to see you guys. Contessa Brewer, Dom Chu, and Kate Rogers. Very much appreciate it. Coming up, my next guest says keeping schools closed could cost the economy $700 billion, and it may be the only thing standing between a recovery or not. That's next. Reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. This fall, some 56 million K-12 students will return to school full-time, but others will be attending class virtually, and there are more that will experience a hybrid model. The debate over reopening schools is centered on the very real health risks of COVID-19 to students and teachers. But according to Barron's, if schools remain closed, the total economic fallout from lost services could reach $700 billion. Let's bring in Barron's reporter Lisa Belfis with more details on these steep costs. Lisa, it's good to have you here. Tell us what parts of the economy you're talking about in particular. Uh, Thanks very much for having me. So to come up with a $700 billion number, we're looking at a few things. One uh, most immediately is the hit to retail sales. Um, For the retail industry, the back-to-school season is second to only the holiday season and makes up about 15% of annual sales. Um, Retailers this year are bracing for a decline of about 20% as most parents say they don't need to buy the normal apparel and supplies and other things that normally go with a new school season. Um, That's pretty small compared to what's happening at the school budget level. Um, Schools across the country are looking at budget declines of about 25%. Wow. And that is going to, yeah, that's going to affect companies like those that uh, provide lunches and janitorial services. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that's... The let's talk thing, about, um, sure, before we go into that, let's talk about some sure. of the companies you mentioned so far. So retail sales, first of all, you know, we all know a name like Target is doing fine no matter if people are showing up for back to school or not. But a name like Newell Rubber Brand, or now Newell Brands, uh, which makes the pens and markers, they're talking about the reluctance of the back to school shopper. On the school budget front, you're talking about Aramark and waste management. Explain why those stocks uh, could suffer as a result of this. Sure. For, for a company like Target, as you said, you know, people are still going to be shopping there. Um, their CFO did recently tell investors, you know, the, the back-to-school season is soft. Um, but for a company like Newell, um, they, they have a large part of the revenue tied to schools. It's in their writing business. Um, so as schools and students don't need to buy as many pens and markers, they are bracing for a hit. Um, then we have companies like Aramark. Um, that's a company that has a lot of contracts with some of the bigger school districts, like the Chicago Public Schools, for example. They provide the school lunches. Um, some of that stuff just isn't going to be needed if a lot of school systems aren't opening. Yeah, and let's talk about the single biggest hit to the economy, which is child care. This is such a huge one. You're talking about it potentially being a $500 billion cost over a nine-month period if the effective child care needs that schools offer, both in-school, after-school activities and the like, aren't covered. My local paper is highlighting this front and center today, saying that people just are beside themselves. They don't know what to do. And Lisa, while there's not maybe a tradable angle on that, I certainly think about the fallout if a bunch of women, and in some cases men, all drop out of the labor force this year, basically in order uh, to be caretakers. 
That's right. About one in five workers um, in the U.S. rely on the school system in order to facilitate their own participation in the workforce. Um, so for, for some families, that means one parent, oftentimes it's the mother, um, is looking at stepping back in order to be home um, given the lack of child care. But for a lot of families, it's not a choice. Um, sometimes, you know, there's single-parent families. And then there are other families I spoke to in, in doing this reporting who just can't afford for one parent to stay home. Um, there's about 40% of the workforce that is currently working from home or able to, but that obviously means about 60% can. Yeah, it is a mess. Uh, it certainly is, and this is a different way of kind of calculating what the cost is. Lisa, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Lisa Belfast is a reporter with Barron's. Coming up, developers are betting that people will want to stay close to home even after the pandemic ends. We'll take a closer look at the concept of 15-minute cities and the opportunities that could create, especially for middle and lower income earners. Next. Welcome back. When it comes to housing, one thing we keep hearing is that the pandemic is leading to urban flight and putting the future of big American cities in doubt. As a result, we've seen the comeback of the 15-minute city, an old idea that's getting new buzz. Essentially, these neighborhoods aim to give residents access to schools, jobs, doctors, banks, pharmacies, and recreation, all within a 15-minute walk or bike ride. For more on this trend, let's bring in urban planner Andre Brumfield. He's a principal at Gensler in Chicago. Andre, it's great to have you. And the first thing on my mind as we talk about this is how quickly can you rebuild a city to fit these criteria? Well, first, thank you for having me on this afternoon. You know, I think uh, your question, uh, let's just be honest, none of us knows uh, where we're going to be on the other side of this pandemic. Um, I think that's, you know, a pretty uh, heavy question to address. But I will say this. I mean, you know, these are issues that we're facing today in our communities. It's nothing new, right? And I think the pandemic, coupled with uh, the murder of George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, you know, really kind of brought these issues to the forefront of how we actually think about our neighborhoods, particularly ones that are challenged, uh, and how do we actually think about investment in a much different way. So I think when we talk about the 20-minute neighborhood concept, it's really kind of expanding this through and looking at this through the lens of equity. And I think your question starts to address that. How do we go about doing it um, as urban designers and planners? You know, we have tools, but this really requires a larger uh, 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 collection of thinking from a broader range of professionals and investors. So do you think basically if you're saying, okay, Manhattan, which has tons of these little 15 or 20 minute communities, you know, that there are cities that need to focus on recreating or revitalizing those areas? Or do you think the population is going to leave for pre-existing areas that offer that kind of 15 to 20 minute convenience? Well, I think the issue in terms of, you know, uh, the concerns about population and loss of populations in our cities, you know, really is focused on affordability. And these are issues that were plaguing, you know, a lot of our major cities prior to the pandemic. It's really just brought those for those issues to the forefront and really exacerbated those issues in a lot of ways. So I don't think it's necessarily about um, moving to a 20, 15 minute neighborhood or 20 minute neighborhood. But it's really about how we actually talk about those other neighborhoods that are challenged, where we can actually build on the assets that are there and also identify the other assets that are really needed to really make these communities stronger, vibrant, more sustainable. And it's really about, you know, if we can actually accomplish that, how can we actually create community of choice for all? And imagine partly what you're talking about, and we've all had the experience living in a city, but is, you know, you have to get on the subway and ride 45 minutes to go to a doctor's appointment 
or, you know, you have to get in your car and drive halfway across the state in order to kind of get the right service. You know, how do you kind of make all of that on a smaller, more accessible scale? What kind, let me ask you kind of what you think is happening so far, because you say that people in the black community were leaving big cities and droves before the pandemic struck. Where are they going and where are the places that you think might end up flourishing as a result? Well, I think, you know, in terms of uh, where uh, a number of uh, um, uh, black and brown people have been going, and of course, Chicago has uh, been uh, suffering from a huge population loss for the past 20 years, particularly among African-Americans, but over 200,000 people have left in the last 20 years. Um, they're going where there's opportunity. They're going where there's opportunity for employment. They're also going where there's uh, opportunity to create, uh, have a more affordable environment for them to live. And Chicago is not alone. I think in terms of, you know, how do we actually address this? You know, this really uh, speaks to a combination of things. It speaks to policy. And it also speaks to how we collectively, you know, start to think about how we work with the private sector to think about investment in a much different way, to think about investment in a much broader way, and to understand that these uh, challenged communities, as some people call them, that there are opportunities there. Yeah. And how can we actually think about investment uh, in terms of, you know, creating, you know, again, kind of the idea of uh, a strong neighborhood, a vibrant neighborhood, a 20-minute neighborhood, yeah. and creating communities of choice for all. Absolutely. Andre, it's been good to have you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Andre Brumfield with uh, the Gensler Chicago Director of Planning and Urban Design. That does it for The Exchange today. Thank you so much for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.